Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 537 with Dan Sachs. And that's the real perfect pie is when you are both can put yourself in your employees or your customer's shoes, but then also you can create behaviors, activities, um, job responsibilities around those feelings of empathy that concretely then can move the needle in the way people feel about their job or the restaurant they're going to. And that builds loyalty and loyalty is financial success. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. Cash flow. It's something every small business is worried about. It's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing and worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future until now. Welcome to cashflowtool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. Cashflowtool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow and it also alerts for unexpected expenses on top of that it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will make tomorrow next week and next month there is no data entry and it's always up to date start your free trial now at www.cashflowtool.com slash barry that's barry b-a-r-r-y all right. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Dan Sachs. Dan, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am ready to go. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. So for more than 20 years, Dan Sachs has helped businesses use hospitality practices to strengthen employee morale, customer retention, and profit. Today, Sachs serves as the president of Meerkat Restaurant Advisory, and he's the professor of entrepreneurship, hospitality management, and service leadership at DePaul University. On top of all this, uh, Sachs is the author of his newly released books, The Million Dollar Greeting, Today's Best Practices for Profit, Customer Retention, and a Happy Workplace. I can't dive into your story and your knowledge, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or a mantra. What do you got for us, Dan? <laughs> um uh, you know, I'm a big believer that the key to successful uh, hospitality is all about empathy. Mm. Understand empathy for yourself, for your customers, and for your employees. It's a win-win. Uh, and more important, not just understanding it, but then acting on it. So I'm not going to uh, let you get away with just making that statement. I'm going to ask you why. Why is empathy so key today? Why is this, uh, this word such a hot word in today's workplace? You know, I think that um, we're, we're the days of um, sort of traditional top-down management. When your boss, when your boss told you to to jump, and at least my generation, I might be a year or two older than you, Eric. Um, you know, you jumped. You jumped. You said how high. And nowadays, I think um, the, the the newer workforce um, says, "Why am I jumping?" Mm -hmm. And so when we are able to put ourselves in um, every, another person's shoes in the workplace, it's, it's easy in, ho in our home lives. But in the workplace, I think it really makes a difference and allows us to sort of be able to think about where the other person's coming from. And then if we can act on that and do something to um, create a better circumstance, again, for our employees, um, for our customers, certainly, uh, it's just a huge win uh, in the restaurant and, and, and hospitality game. Beautiful. And I, I didn't really have a, a specific way I want to 
attack today's conversation. I definitely want to cover the three sections, uh, what you took away from those three sections. And I want to talk about empathy. Uh, I was going to save empathy for the end, but I feel like where we are right now, what you're saying is a good segue into that whole empathy conversation uh, with millennial. I want to talk about, sorry, uh, the millennial generation uh, and what we're learning about. Uh, you, you mentioned before this whole, like one of your, your, uh, the people you profile in this book, uh, Nick Cirillo calls it command and control. Right? right. And like that doesn't work anymore. He was also a past guest on the show. I love oh, his story. Okay. Yeah. And so it was an Ari's. Yeah. So I, I, I was really, this book really resonated with me because of the people I connected with in the past who you also profiled, but Nick really talks about this. What you shared is this whole, this whole approach of command and control doesn't work anymore. He calls it trust and track. Do you want to kind of talk about what you learned with, um, with Nick and in, in that whole, I think he was the first person you profiled in the book. Yeah. yeah he's right in the top section there. Yeah. I think, yeah, Nick's a true believer. We, I call them the true believers uh, evangelists. Yes. And I, Nick certainly embraces that mantra. Um, you know, the the reality is is that we'd like to think um, that each generation is unique and its own special snowflake. And there are traits that are unique. Um, and, and I definitely want to talk about that. But we're all human at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And we all want uh, recognition and acknowledgement for our efforts and our situation. And so, you know, empathy is a somewhat new trait, as you point out, in in business in general and certainly in hospitality. But it's not like it's something that's brand new to our lives in the way we think about the world. The the difference, I think, is is that younger people in the workforce are thinking about it in the context of making decisions around where they work, how they work, um, and that trickles then down to the kinds of places that they frequent, the places that they go, the the, the places with, that they're loyal to. And so uh, I think Nick's point, and I think what has really resonated both with his workforce and just in the hospitality part of the service sector in general is this idea that um, we can't just expect to tell our employees what to do. We have to be accountable to them. And we have to be authentic in the way that we approach conversations with them. And, and I think Nick found and, and a lot of folks in the book found that that approach really resonates with the younger millennials and, and Gen, Gen Z um, people entering the workforce. And, and in my own experience, that's definitely been the case, both when I was um, operating restaurants and as a consultant and even teaching now. So um you know, it, it permeates everything we do. And I could go on and on, obviously. So you'll cut me off when you want me to. But, um, you know, I think that the, the, what Nick has recognized and what is true is that the partner to empathy is this idea of action, of taking action. And Nick does it in his business by setting up very clearly defined criteria for um how people are promoted, how they're trained, how employees um, have access to information about how the restaurants are doing, uh, and then that translates to how they treat their customers. And that's the real perfect pie, is when you are both can put yourself in your employees' or your customers' shoes, but then also you can create behaviors, activities, um, job responsibilities around those feelings of empathy that concretely then can move the needle in the way people feel about their job or the restaurant they're going to. And that builds loyalty and loyalty is financial success. Awesome. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun right now. I'm chomping at the bit because I love the, the stuff that you dive into in your book. And I'm really excited about the conversation, but we have to probably dial it back a little bit and learn a little bit more about you and how <laughs> you got to where you are. I'm sorry. I just got I really got into the conversation right away. So yeah. uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are and where you got to where, how, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So I um, started out actually, uh, my first job was working in a neighborhood restaurant, like a lot of people, and where I grew up, my mom went back to work and I started uh, working in the, in the making salads at this, at this place where the chef actually an owner went to the CIA. This is like 30 years ago, back before that was, uh, you know, a common occurrence and and people really um, thought about food in a different way back then. But 
um, I had this great background and I went to culinary school in France and I worked in New York City at uh, a restaurant called the Union Square Cafe you might have heard of. Um, I worked at Tribeca Grill for Drew Nieborn for several years. And so I cut my my chops in, in the restaurant business, primarily in the back of the house, uh, working on the line. But it was so I got started, I think, in that respect, because it was like when I was about 16 or 17, I realized I was not going to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> and cooking, really, the mechanics of it, the rhythm of it, the camaraderie of it was as close to I was ever going to get. Mm. <laughs> and I was good at it. Awesome. So I, I latched onto it. Um, eventually I sort of moved to the front of the house. I, I realized I didn't want to be 40 years under a hood and, um, started managing in restaurants, ultimately got married, moved to Chicago. And I opened my first restaurant, um, back in 1996. So I'm curious, uh, when were you at union square hospitality? I was at Union Square when there was no hospitality group. I was there before Gramercy Tavern, before Shake Shack, before The Modern, before everything. It was just me, Danny Meyer, Michael Romano, and about 50 other really dedicated people who were completely um, focused on creating this amazing experience. It was in the 90s, were you, um, early 90s. Okay, so you were maybe after um, uh, Vitaly Paley. Yeah, I don't know that name. Oh, he just okay. So he was on the show. Um, I just his episode went live like two weeks ago, and he was a really great guy. I was wondering if you knew him. Uh, that was just my own curiosity. Uh, but, it's possible that I knew him, and that in my old age, I have completely forgotten. Yeah, we met, we met <laughs> a lot of people. I completely understand. Uh, so, really reflecting back at this time, uh, some of the mentors you had. What were the key, the biggest lessons you you took from this early point in your career? You know, well, definitely. Between Danny Meyer and Drew Nieporn, um, I think what I understood early on was the importance of investing in re personal relationships. Mm. Um, you know, it's tough when you're an entrepreneur and certainly in the restaurant business and everything is really geared toward that in the moment reaction, whether you're cooking or you're on the floor, you're talking to guests, um, even in the back of the house when you're dealing with the financials. But both both Drew and Danny really took the time out, sort of put an all stop on everything else to ensure that they were connected to employees in a way that I hadn't seen before that. And that really resonated with me about how to think about managing and what kinds of um, tools a manager or an owner could could have in their toolbox that that would make a difference uh, and get their team to work and sort of row all in the same direction. And, um, you know, in the end make create a much higher quality product that, that I think customers really connected to and, and both certainly have proved out to be very successful entrepreneurs in their own right. And so I think their secret sauce is probably pretty relevant. Okay. So you said you uh, moved to Chicago around 95, 96 and, um, what, did you open your own restaurant at this point or? Yeah, well, first I started, I had a connection here and I started as a manager in the front of the house at a restaurant, Italian restaurant here called Spiaggia, um, fine dining Italian restaurant. And what I really, at that time in the, in the mid nineties, there were sort of two distinct camps of restaurants. One was the sort of very, very casual bistro and one was the Uber fine dining. And that existed, I think, well into you know, through the nineties and into my having come from both Tribeca grill and union square cafe in New York city in general really had seen that there was a way to bridge that gap by creating a great high quality restaurant experience without it being formal and fancy and white tablecloth and, and, um, and all that. And so we, I had this amazing chef, um, partnered with me and we opened this restaurant called Spruce, um, which was um, the Esquire magazine restaurant of the year. The chef was, you know, food and wine top 10 chefs in the country. We cooked for Julia Child um, before she passed away. Um, just every kind of accolade. Um, we were very fortunate and had a really, um, had great, great reception and sort of, I think we were smart in the sense that we were on the cutting edge of recognizing the need for people 
for customers that wanted to have a great restaurant experience but didn't want to feel like they had to be confined to a formal dining experience. Yes, you're, you're touching on something that recently came up uh, that has come up a, a few times and it's a sense of stripping away the formalities. Like We can serve people to a high standard. We can do food to a high standard without forcing people into these molds. And I feel like when you have all the formalities, you're forcing people into molds uh, to create consistencies. But how important are those consistencies across the industry? Isn't it just more important that we have consistencies within those four walls? Do uh, you notice that there's there's a sense of like this this forcement or this this force of consistency across the industry that just you have to wonder why? I mean, is that something that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. Danny Meyer used to say. You know, it's absolutely fine to serve a BLT as long as you serve the best BLT. Mm -hmm. That was sort of his, you know, the way he approached food. And I thought that was such a smart way of thinking about um, how to present food in general. Mm -hmm. That that the measure of quality isn't how fancy something is, but the measure is really how well it and how consistently it is prepared. And that sort of permeated all through not just food production, but also uh, service quality. Mm-hmm. And I think um, now we ha- there are such um, so many and so prevalent um, uh, chain restaurants and sort of formulaic approaches to food service as as dining out and has become increasingly a part of our lifestyle choices just generally that that has created standardization to the ultimately to the detriment of the dining experience and that those people that are able to get outside that shell that are able to recognize that there can be something more and that being more doesn't mean harder or more expensive it just means different those people they're and they're profiled in this book those people really recognize the value of this sort of hospitality equation that I was first talking about. Yeah. And to go in deeper on this, um, bringing it back to those standardizations, the, the, the format, the format formalities, uh, when we force people to act a certain way because we think that's the way to be and we don't let them to be that, you know, we just don't allow them to be themselves. Uh, you know, we're, we're restricting the human experience, right? Uh, you can't be yourself when you have to be a certain way all the time and you can't stand out from the masses when you're just trying to be like everybody else. Uh, and I've noticed there's a trend with a lot of the people I speak with that they don't care about what everyone else is doing. They're just more focused on what they're doing and how happy they are. And what that creates is basically a it's a very unique concept uh, or they're zigging when now where everyone else is zagging, like serving a farm to table food with hip hop playing in the background because that's just an extension of who they are. Right. Do you want to hey, listen as long as you can do it and, and be profitable? Um, I'm all for it. I think that's one of the other challenges. I mean, just on a very practical level in the restaurant business is that um, I think our human nature is to spend time and energy and focus on the stuff we love to do, the stuff that got us there, the passion that, that, that incentivized us to open a restaurant, for example, in the first place. And this is something I, I talk to my clients about all the time is that that is going to come naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it is coupling that with spending time and, and diving into areas of uncomfortable, into uncomfortable places where uh, I know, I guess the best example is I know a lot of great chefs and extraordinary restaurateurs who couldn't read a balance sheet to save their lives. And at the end of the day, if you can't run a financially responsible business, um, doesn't matter how good your food is if you're not open and no one's there to, no one can can access it, no one can eat it. So it's a it's a it's a multi pronged uh, challenge, and I think that's that's why you have, you know, you both you certainly lots of success, but you also have failure in the restaurant business. Um, is that it's it's you got to have all the ingredients to use a to use a culinary um culinary example you have to have all the ingredients to make a great soup and that that is like i, I agree with you. you you have to have all the ingredients but i also think there's a level of balance too because like you you mentioned you can have one extreme where you're so formal you're so you have so many systems processes procedures that it, you strip away the soul right and then on the other side you're so human you're, and you're an incredible chef but you you can't 
you can't scale because there's no you can't read a balance sheet. You know, it, it's that finding that middle ground, right? Right? Yeah, where, where really, it's hard work, man. Yeah. It, and if it were easy, we'd all be, you know, famous. Absolutely. <laughs> so, '96, uh, you open your first restaurant, like we were talking about, uh, and you were stripping away the formalities. Uh, and by '99, you uh, were. Uh, was it from 99 to 2015 you owned BIN uh, 36 restaurant room? Yeah. So that was a massive endeavor. Um, Bin 36 was a 12,000 plus square foot restaurant um, that was, again, we had really good timing there. It was wine focused. Um, And it really, in the same way that at Spruce, we approached food and the dining experience, um, by sort of stripping away some of the formality, we saw that in Spruce that um, wine had that same aura of uh, formality and that it was sort of like knowing about wine, especially, you know, 20 years ago, you were sort of in a special club. uh, And we just felt like, you know, wine tastes great. (laughs) And why should we um, make it exclusive? So we really built this concept around, um, making wine accessible to everybody, both in price and in terms of the way we described it using what is now very commonplace language around um, flavor profiles for wine, but back then was not. And, um, you know, our servers dressed in jeans and t-shirts. And so you can imagine this massive space where we could see 250 people, everybody drinking wine and wine flights. And um, it was really, really great exciting concept and so, continued, you know, continued for a long time in that same vein. Yeah, 16 uh, years is a great run. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious what happened in the three years with Spruce. It sounds like you guys opened Spruce. You had great uh, notoriety. Did you sell Spruce or yeah, did you- I, did. I actually sold Spruce on D- September 10th, 2001 of all things. Um, so, you know, I made the mistake that many restaurateurs make at the time. I got lucky because I was able to sell it. But um, I opened Bin 36 in 1999, and I pulled resources from Spruce. And ultimately, that took away from the guest experience at Spruce. And so we were still breaking even, but we certainly weren't doing as well as we had in the first several Wait, years. Let's dive into this. Um, you said that you... you what took away from the, the guest experience at Spruce opening? Well, I had, so by the time um, I was opening bin 36, I had, I had two additional partners in the business and um, you know, it's like a newborn child. You open a new restaurant and all three of us were spending time at the new um, restaurant. It was super busy right out of the bat, uh, right out of the gate, sorry. And so um not only that, but then I would pull other resources, servers, cooks, whatever we could get. And so, and ultimately that created um, problems at Spruce, even though it had been doing very well, any restaurant can't just rest on its laurels. You need to continue to evolve and improve um, somewhat like you said. And so we stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, there were other independent restaurateurs that had seen what we had done and they were, um, jumping on that bandwagon very quickly and aggressively. So when you say they saw what you did, you're talking about taking the formalities away from fine. Yeah, we were really the first in the, in the mid nineties um, to do that in Chicago. And so, um, you know, there were a lot of smart, there are, and at that time there were a lot of smart restaurant tours um, who saw that and saw that opportunity and jumped in. And so when we sort of took our eye off the ball, it's, very quickly, other people um, became more relevant, and that's one of the challenges with the restaurant industry industry generally. And that's why there's such also such high failure rate is that you know one, as soon as you're not the shiny new penny and people are looking at, at your neighbor instead of you, it's tough to stay on the top. So uh, I think this is a great opportunity to look at a couple of the, the folks you profiled in your book, Danny Meyer right. being one of them and Ari Weinswag being another one of them. What do you think they did um, that was different from how you approach Spruce yeah. and opening these other restaurants? That's a, a great question. You know, one, another person not to take away from those two guys is Steve Hindi who started uh, Brooklyn brewery. Yes. Good. Thank you for adding him to the mix. Because, you know, he started, he started in Brooklyn and with a product craft beer at a time when a, nobody even hung out in Brooklyn in the 1980s. 
and nobody knew what craft beer was. And I think what all these people did, um, among many things, was that they were really consistent in their vision and that no matter what happened, they remained true to it. Um, Brooklyn Brewery is a good example. There, as, as, as Steve found success, it would have been very easy for him and tempting. And he had lots of opportunity to sort of scrub away the Brooklyn moniker and um, build it bigger and better. But he doubled down on the importance of the community there and investing in it. And um, in the end, that really yielded fruit because um, the brand became extraordinary and people who liked the brand became extraordinarily loyal to it. And the same way, you know, Danny Meyer and Ari are both great examples of entrepreneurs who had a vision for how they would um, build their business. And as their business grew, they maintained and stayed true to their vision. Shake Shack's a great example with Union Square Hospitality Group. Their, their view of hospitality at Shake Shack is the same as it is at Union Square Cafe or Gramercy Tavern or uh, The Modern in New York City. There, there's some of their hallmark restaurants there. And Ari um, at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor um, started out with one spot and then has expanded his business significantly, but never strayed from his view on the importance of taking care of your employees and ensuring that they deliver extraordinary customer service. So in talking to him, you know, when we were writing this book, his passion for that and his enthusiasm and focus his laser like focus on that is the exact same as I suspect it was when he first opened the doors many, many years ago. Yeah. And listening to you talk, there was one word I pulled out that really resonated with me that these three gentlemen do really well is they, they, they have depth, they go deep, uh, and they, they take what they've done. They have their vision, but they, they just keep, pressure on doing whatever that vision is or whatever that mission was. And they, they, they go, they make an impact in their community. They make an impact in the people that are working with them so much to the point where they're, they're transforming the people they work for and they're transforming the community. They're, re, they're recreating their, their core values in other people. So they're replacing themselves. So <laughs> yeah, right. And, and they create such an impact on these communities and these individuals that they can leave because they've transformed everyone they've touched. Uh, is it safe to say that maybe after three years at Spruce, you hadn't quite transformed people to the point where you you didn't need to be there because you hadn't recreated yourself and these other folks? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's more of an issue of um, think about a restaurant like a plant. Um, you know, in the beginning, you're nurturing it and taking care of it, and and at some point, it's sort of the roots get deep enough and it um, is stable. But if you turn your back and you start stop watering it and stop pruning it, it's going to die. Um, so it can, you can get away with a little bit of that, right? Just like a plant, if you miss a couple of days, it's going to be fine. But if you really aren't, don't keep your eye on the ball. Ultimately, you can't expect uh, any plant, any any restaurant, any business to um, run well on autopilot doesn't work that way and especially in the food and beverage industry where the relationship between the employees and the customers is so dependent on how we deliver quality service and i see that now i do in addition to teaching a lot of consulting and um, i see that time and time again where organizations grow bigger and bigger and they they really don't maintain that laser like focus on on what i would call hospitality one of the in the book one of the interesting examples of that is hyatt hotels which is you know an enormous company 110,000 employees and how they have put a plan in place uh, around the idea of hospitality and sort of caring for customers that is really differentiating themselves in the marketplace versus a marriott for example um, where it's even a much larger company but but because Hyatt is focused very specifically on this idea of hospitality and delivering this, this sort of empathy uh, experience, they're able to drill down from um, regional 
managers to hotel GMs to department heads to housekeepers, for example. And I think that resonates meaningfully with with guests of all ages. Yeah. Uh, um, so I'm curious, uh, you sold Spruce uh, in 2000, what would you say, 2001? Yep. Uh, and then you had success with uh, Ben Restaurant Group from 99 to 2015. How did you scale that business? How did you grow as professional with that business? Um, you know, there's nothing like licking a few wounds to sort of give you a more mature perspective on how to run a successful business. And so I think um, uh, we scaled by scaling a little bit more slowly and purposefully. Um, and I think ha- put in the kind of scaffolding around business development that um, it's easy to, to sort of look past when you're just starting out or you, you haven't done it before. Um, so we created our organization and, and structure around everything from um, accounting to training, you know, in the beginning, I did all the training. I, I trained everybody from um, servers to to support staff to dishwashers, and you know that wasn't possible as we grew. And so, developing a purposeful training plan, um, you know, was was necessary to to be able to grow the business. And I think that makes a big difference. And that's one of the things that, again, in the book, when you talk about the evangelists, one of the things that they're so passionate about is ensuring that for everything there is a structure uh, around it so that there's um, support mechanisms for all the employees and that's a tough nut to crack when you're an independent entrepreneur like Nick Cirillo as you know who you know really had to make a choice about focusing on those details as as the key to success in his business he could have very easily you know once he started to get up and running and was doing well turned his back on that stuff or done it in a sort of half-assed way but he really doubled down instead and did this track method that that created accountability across all dimensions of his business and that's led to significant success for him so i want to kind of wrap up your story as far as uh, what happened after 2015, why you uh, chose, did you end up ultimately selling bin 36 restaurant group? Yep. Okay. So uh, what, what made you want to get out of the, I'm old man. The, I, well, well, the great point, I'm you're, you kind of went to where I was thinking, was this an exit strategy for you? Were you looking to kind of retire? Uh, what was going through your mind? What, what was yeah. The, the I, you time? know, I, I really, um, Unless you're part of a big corporate culture, I think the restaurant business is a is a young person's business. Um, and I joke about being old, but the you know you need that laser like focus and that passion to keep things going. And Endurance. I just <laughs> I, I, yeah yeah I mean it's right. a it's a twenty four seven business. Mm-hmm. So um, I realized as I was seeing my fifties around the corner that um, it just wasn't where my energy was anymore, and I felt like. Um, I was at a point in my career where, where sharing what I knew would be more valuable than just trying to perpetuate what was already in place. You know, and I'm happy that that's where you are today because I feel like too many people kind of lose that, uh, part of the big picture. You know, the, the life cycle of a professional is you, you know, you come up, you learn, you get mentored, you, then you, you spend maybe like one third of your life learning the, the game. Uh, you always are learning, but then the, the, the second third is doing right. Being the person that's doing it. And then the, the last third they say is paying it forward and teaching. Right. And I think so many, so many of us never really focus on that last third. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why we are where we are today is because we don't share enough knowledge we don't pay it forward as much as we should which is has created the situation where we i don't know where even the school systems are standardized because we just we're not willing just to give the knowledge away and pass it down to the next generation do you want to reflect on that yeah no i think that's absolutely true um you know it's always been something um that i have wanted to do it's funny in just thinking reflecting on what you just said when i think about the different companies that are featured in the book, they all, all the, all the entrepreneurs and leaders there, they all sort of come from that same cut from that same cloth where they feel like, 
Um, it's sort of something that they were just born with this idea that um, creating great culture in all its manifestations was um, was critical to their success. So that as they have developed and grown, teaching is a natural evolution mm. for them. And I think, um, you know, it's a very satisfying life. Um, and I, you know, and it's not like I don't monetize it. I do a lot of consulting um, and and whatnot but um but is that the, it's not the same as the restaurant business um when i was running it but but it but it is in many ways more gratifying it's sort of um it's like i started out by saying uh we'd like to think that each generation each generational challenge is unique and different uh but in the end we're all human and we continue to make similar types of mistakes, even though there are nuanced differences. And so being able to go to somebody who's in there, you know, like I was, I wish I had somebody like me to talk to when I was in my early thirties, um, to be able to say, Hey, you know, maybe think about this in a different way. Mm, yeah. Um, I love where this conversation has gone and I can't wait to see where it goes, but we need to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and then we'll be right back to kind of start dissecting these three sections of your book. And I, I want to go deeper into uh, what I was hoping to talk a little bit more about earlier, this whole idea of millennials and how they get a bad rep and uh, your share more of your thoughts on millennials. But let's just take that quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. All right. I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there i'm sure you've heard me say it because i'm I'm always saying it, and that's two things determine your growth. The first thing, it's your people. The second thing, well, that's cash flow. And we got you covered on the cash flow part because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com, well, it's simple, it's powerful, and it's predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and works on any device anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow, next week, and next month. To learn more and start your free trial, head over to cashflowtool.com slash Barry. That's cashflowtool.com slash Barry, B-A-R-R-Y. We're back and let's start diving into these three sections. So we already kind of touched on the first section a little bit with Nick Cirillo. You're talking about uh, the evangelist, right? And what what is the evangelist? What What drives the evangelist? You know, I think in general, when we think about evangelists, sometimes we, we even think about evangelists um, uh, in a negative way, you know, when we hear yeah. about it on TV or something like that. But I think that the context that um, I'm talking about it is really leadership that practices what it preaches. So yes. the, the, the premise that being accountable uh, to and authentic in, in terms of how you communicate to your employees and knowing that they are sort of the front lines of how they're going to then in turn communicate with your customers um, is sort of the key components um, of the evangelists. Mm -hmm. These ideas around 
um, uh, authenticity and accountability. One of the um, companies that's profiled that, that we haven't talked about and that actually has nothing to do with food and beverage is this company Barrel Health, which is essentially a, uh, one of the largest call center companies for healthcare in the country. And um, the, the founder there, Paul Spiegelman, um, sort of really changed the way that um, call center behavior and employees were treated there. And he did that by, um, by this, this sort of mantra in his head around authenticity and accountability and created uh, a really dynamic workplace where the employees were less um, uh, concerned about the problems um, that, uh, you know, which often happens in terms of call centers when people call in, but more thinking of them as opportunities to really um, serve people. In, in a meaningful way. And, and I think that that sort of changes the way if we, if we sort of approach the world that way as, as things that things are always going to go wrong. But if we think of them as opportunities to make it right, as opposed to problems that are just nagging at us. Um, yeah. You know, we well, can, I think Danny Myers calls that just being able to write the end of the story. He mentions it in his book. Yep. Uh, and that's such once you understand that you get to you get to write the end of the story. Things are going to like you say, problems are going to happen. Things are going to go south. But what we have control over is how we react to that yep. and how we want to leave it. Uh, so often when things go south, we're like, well, we lost this one, but we didn't necessarily like we can always win them back. Uh, and it's just knowing that we can. I think most people just don't realize that they can win it back. What do you want to say? And about what's that? interesting to follow up on that is that we do it in our personal lives. Right. You know, if you get in a fight with your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is, you know, you're going to invest in trying to make it right. Um, if you want to maintain that relationship. So when we're in business and we have a problem with a customer who's dissatisfied, why don't we invest the same energy selflessly to make it right in the same way that we would in our personal lives? I have no um, idea. Leaders in this book, you know, that they really put, leave their ego at the door and, and take that approach. So, uh, Bringing it back to this idea of the evangelists, um, in earlier you said that they create structure around their values. Is it, is it safe to say the evangelist is very uh, more like on the spiritual spectrum where they have their <laughs> where they have their uh, their core values, right? And the things that they are non negotiable values that they have, and they they build structure around these values to ensure that these values are being executed every day. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's sort of like. Um they talk about it not to draw religion into the conversation, but the, the, the conversation sort of goes around revolves around the idea that, you know, um, customer service or taking care of my customers is the number one priority. And so my follow up will be, well, how do you measure that? How do you know if you're being successful there? And more often than not, the response is, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure, but it's sort of like God, I sort of feel like God exists in some form and I can't prove it, but I know it's true. And I think yeah. that the evangelists in some ways sort of just are such firm, passionate believers around the importance of taking care of their customers and their employees. And they can't necessarily put a number on it, but they're a hundred percent believing in, in the importance of it. I think it's just regardless of what you believe in, you can boil it down to good and bad, positive and negative. Um, and these people believe in the good, right? Doing good is good business. And the more good you can do, whether it be to your employees or to your, your customers, the more good is going to come back. Uh, and it's just believing in that. And then they create the structure around these beliefs to make sure, like one example, I've been to Nick's Rillo's, Nick's pizza in chicago oh yeah uh, yeah and i've and i've seen the the hallway that he has and the walls right, in his basement right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and the the systems that you you talk about in the book with the the cards being like flipping the cards over so you can have this trust and track an environment where uh you just create the systems and then you trust your people to to do uh the right thing because you're 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 i don't know it only works though if you, as a leader, are invested in their in in being accountable and authentic in the way you communicate with your employees, right? It so 
the trust and track starts with the leadership. Like though that it has to come from the top that they are um, sort of carrying carrying the water for everybody else. And if and if the employees believe that, then they're inclined to follow the prescription. And it's not for everybody. Just like you know, I say. Um, everybody likes to eat out, but restaurants are like ice cream. You know, some people like vanilla, some people like chocolate, some people like strawberries, some people like Neapolitan. You know, you have to find the culture that works for you. But when you find it and you're in that situation, um, you know, you get miraculous results. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, variables or, or uh, parts of the uh, evangelist category section in, in your book before moving over more towards the transformer, uh, the tra the three transformers, quote unquote, that you profile. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I think that, 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 um, you know, it's, it's living your values is really at the core of the evangelist principles, which is not to say that the other, um, case studies in the book and the other leaders don't believe that equally, uh, as well, but they're not as, um, structure evangelist like Steve Hindi um, who is in the next section the Transformers um, I think I mentioned him uh, who started Brooklyn Brewery um, you know he really believed that there was a way to change um, how we think about craft beer and he built a community and that's another real pillar of, of, of uh, importance uh, in terms of thinking about how to create successful culture. He, he built this, this community around um, craft beer and around Brooklyn and around this feeling that he was doing something that was unique and special. And, and his employees really bought into it. So he was totally authentic and totally accountable to his employees and remains so to this day. Brooklyn Brewery is the largest independent craft brewery in the world, I think, certainly in North America. And he's still hosting, you know, people at his house for barbecues and gets the brewers over. And, you know, he's still in the middle of the thick of it all these years later and with the same level of passion because he knows that um, building that sort of network within the company uh, about around the value of uh, the community culture is what makes Brooklyn Brewery unique and, and special relative to all the other craft beer on the market. Okay. So one of the, the, the key variables I picked up on these transformers is that they took an industry that already existed. Uh, the three people you profile, um, Rob from Zappos, Mike from FreshBooks, and Steve from Brooklyn, they took these uh, Zappos being shoes, FreshBooks obviously being accounting, and Brooklyn brewery being beer they they literally transformed these industries um so what is it about these individuals that made them uh transform each one of these industries i, I don't know if you want to get into the specifics on how they did that or not but do you pick up what i'm putting down yeah yeah i think um you know i think they all saw um business as it was and recognized that it simply could be better Mike McDermott, the guy who started FreshBooks, um, tells this story about uh, he's it, FreshBooks is a um, invoicing business. It's a digital. It's a it's an online platform for invoicing. Kind of like QuickBooks. Kind of like QuickBooks for for um, independent entrepreneurs and small businesses, which is the largest growing segment. Um, and so he's really you know he's got he's he's at the crest of the wave. Um, which is pretty exciting, but, but Mike started out as a consultant and he, um, he was sending out an invoice, copying over an invoice and he forgot to change the, um, the company name that he was billing out. So he sent an invoice out to the wrong, you know, sent the right invoice with the wrong, um, I'm, company I'm, block at the I'm top. totally guilty of doing that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so he realized that, hey, here, there's a flaw here in, um, in how this works and, and an opportunity. And so I'm going to change the way we think about invoicing. Um, and that led to this, this really dynamic company that he built from the ground up. Uh, and, and he, did it in a way that acknowledged um, the need of the customer to have 
especially the smaller customer, an independent entrepreneur, an independent consultant, uh, a small business owner, to have a level of customer service available to them that was different than what was currently out there, with even QuickBooks, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he, they call um, the, the people at the customer service reps in the company rock stars. And they're literally treated like rock stars in the company. And um, that's because he recognized that in his industry, that if you outsource your accounting, more often than not, you and you try to reach somebody because you have a problem, you're put on hold or you're forced to get into some kind of phone tree that is a nightmare. And so he designed a business and to sort of change that dynamic and, and recreate what was a miserable aspect of being an independent entrepreneur and made it into something that was easy and fun and you know his business has grown extraordinarily well and and not only that he's he's actually a canadian business but his business is rated in the top places to work in north america um year after year so he's really built a culture around the idea that doing it differently um is a positive Yes. And that's one of the big variables I pulled from this section of your book, uh, regardless of whether it was Zappos, FreshBooks or the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Brewery. They they look at being different um, as being a good thing uh, to not basically yeah, go with the status quo, but to, to be fluid, to be moldable, right, to adapt to whatever the, the market needs uh, to be relevant at whatever specific time. And the cool thing is what what is consistent among these three companies that I drew was that they believe in the the the, the one consistency regardless of the, the the time the decade we're in is how you treat your people and the communities that you're in and yeah. the service being the one variable that they all seem to kind of agree on that was kind of my big takeaway uh, is that you know you need to be fluid, but the one thing that doesn't that that needs to remain consistent is how well you treat your people. Yeah, um, very very employee centric companies. Yes, um, because they believe, without a doubt, um, as the evangelists do, that the that taking care of your employees and doing whatever it takes to support them ultimately um, bleeds its way into how your employees then take care of your customers awesome. and um you know the, it's hard to argue with that philosophy so the the last section was the prag uh pragmatists yeah uh I, the this least one, glamorous and sexy but the most realistic in some ways yeah I, this part of the book was probably the least that resonated with me the least not to say that it wasn't valuable but like i, I just didn't jive as much as i did in the other sections it kind of seemed to me like a combination they're they're like a hybrid of the evangelists and the transformers where they are true and tried in their ways they've been around forever but they're willing to adapt when necessary uh, but they all seem to have the same values as the transformers and the evangelists is that safe to say i think that's absolutely true and 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 they are specifically, I think, focused on customer service, on delivering great customer service as the core tenant of how they differentiate themselves within their sector. So if you look at Hyatt, which is in there, or Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer's company in New York, um, and even Lettuce Entertain You Enterprises, which is a national restaurant company with a couple hundred restaurants. Um, you know, they are all uh, taking the same tools um, that the evangelists and the transformers um, used, but they are very much looking at their customers themselves. These are bigger companies, lots of employees, as you said, established, and they're really trying to see how they can move the needle with their customers. And so they're very, very focused on understanding their customers and then so are using hospitality as the tool, the principal tool to differentiate themselves in the market. And, and they, and Mark Hoppelmazian is the CEO of Hyatt, um, specifically talks about the idea of empathy plus action, that those two um, assets in combination uh, are, are, while they sound very familiar, are in fact, when it comes right down to it, somewhat unique um, 
as as motivational tools for customers. Okay, so I'm I can't help but think um, of Union Square Hospitality and how they are uh, a restaurant group that's been around for decades. Uh, and the example I can think of as as far as how they're how they they're willing to kind of keep their core values, keep their their foundation the same, but are willing to change and transform when needed is with the whole tipping policy. And <laughs> do you want to use that example as do you want to dive into that? Maybe? You know, I think it's funny. So um, the guy who's actually from Union Square, who is um, I know Danny well, but the guy who I wanted to talk to there is a guy named Richard Crane. Um, who is essentially the overall director of operations for the whole company. And he talks about um, Union Square Hospitality Group as being somewhat of a cult and not in a negative way. He says cult, you know, is is part of the word culture. And we really believe um, that building culture around um, all of our employees is critical. And so when when they started to explore the idea of changing the tipping policy. It was really about trying to create and reinforce a culture where the entire team when everybody is valued, everybody works harder for the same to the same goal. And in their case, customer delivering great customer experiences. So I think they felt like um, eliminating tipping was a way for them to sort of level the playing field between front and back of the house and demonstrate in a very practical way how um, they built a culture around the entire company. Um, and that would yield ultimately, you know, of course, some people left and some people don't can't buy into it, but that the people that stayed sort of were drinking the Kool-Aid or the cult um, of, of it we're going to deliver um, an even better experience across all parts of the business. So you not only got great service, but you get, you know, the dishwasher was invested in a different kind of, at a different level. And the people behind the scenes that you wouldn't normally see um, would, would feel like they were all part of the community. Well, you could say even those people that, that left would, would have been uh, a good thing because in a way you're, you're, those people that aren't 100% on board are just diluting your culture. So by leaving your only enriching the culture with more people that are 100% on board with what you're trying to do. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's absolutely the philosophy of the company. And I think what they've found over time is that that has, you know, over the long run has really yielded a much more cohesive, larger unit um, than was in the past where everybody's on the same page and, and everybody's rowing in the same direction. So the only other thing I really wanted to dive into before we wrap up today's conversation, um, you started the book and you got into real detail on millennials and this whole perception of millennials uh, and how maybe the issue isn't with millennials, but our perception of millennials. So do you want to dive into, uh, I guess, why there seems to be a divide between the I don't know Gen Y and Gen X of today and the newer generations like what, what's going on there? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think there are two things happening. One is that it's, it's always, um, convenient to say, ah, oh, the net, you know, those kids, <laughs> those kids today, they're, they don't want to work hard. They don't want to do this. They, you know, it sort of seems to be this reflexive, um, response from the preceding generation. Um, and, and the reality is that millennials, as I have said a couple of times, you know, they, they are equally as passionate and equally as driven and as intelligent and capable. But certainly because of um, the world we live in today and our access to technology and information, they use tools and think about the world in a different way. And again, we'll go back to Nick Cirillo, um, but is echoed by everybody in the book, which is you have two choices. You can sort of say, ah, they're not doing uh, great work for me or they don't care or whatever, um, feed into that preconceived notion. Or you can lean into millennials and, and understand that they have, you know, different experiences, but are, are if not um, equally more passionate uh, about um, where they work because they're asking questions like why or what, what, what kind of culture does this company have? And it's not just about a paycheck. And so when you can develop those people and get them excited about what you're doing, they'll actually double down 
on how hard they work and the kind of value that they bring to other employees as well as the company as a whole. And I think these the the, the people profiled in the book really get that. They, yeah. They're fighting millennials. They're embracing millennials. They, they love the fact that millennials challenge them and ask why and, and um, make it, make it um, not difficult, but make, don't make it easy on them. It forces you to grow. And one, one commonality I, I found with a, a lot of people that you spoke with was when they, you, you asked the question about millennials, that that topic comes up time and time again throughout the book. But there seems to be a general consensus that at the end of the day, regardless of what decade you were born in, we're all individuals and we are all human. And at the core of how we function, we all function the same. Uh, and what makes millennials different is that we came up in an, an era or an era, I can't say that word right now, I don't know why I'm struggling, an era that uh, we didn't, we, we were taught to challenge everything uh, because we had the ability to challenge everything because we could find out the truth. So when you're just telling us to do something because, well, we're going to say, well, why? And right. um, I don't know if that's right, so I'm going to go get the answer. And when I find out the answer and realize that you are giving me a bunch of BS, then why would I trust you? Why would I want to be a part of your team? when you're just telling me to do it because whereas previous generations, all they ever had was the, those who came before. Right. Yep. So basically now it's just the game. I, the, the tables have turned a little yeah. bit. So employers need to step up. They can't just this sort of, again, command what's what is in management terms called command and control management styles where the boss says, you know, I need you to work on Saturday and you say, okay, sure. <laughs> I'll be there. You know, that, that stuff doesn't fly anymore. And I think, you know, as much as there's that difference, we still, I say to my students, when I teach entrepreneurship, I say, you know, is there anybody in this class who doesn't like to be treated well, or doesn't want somebody to be nice to them? You know, there are certain truisms around hospitality and customer service and how we value each other that um, are independent of generation. It's just the tools and how we talk and how we relate that are changing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great conversation. Uh, one last question before we wrap up. Uh, the title of the book is The Million Dollar Greeting. Uh, today's best practices for profit, customer service, or sorry, customer retention in a happy workplace. So what is the million dollar greeting? If you could uh, summarize that, like what does the million dollar greeting look like? I think along the lines of what we've talked about, when companies are successful in creating great connections with their employees and their customers, those customers, especially and employees, become loyal to the brands. And when people are loyal, profitability ensues. And some of that's demonstrated specifically in the book. But if you think about um, reducing uh, attrition and, and um, turnover, and you think about uh, maintaining customers and the cost of acquiring customers, it's clear, statistically clear, that both reducing turnover and um, increasing loyalty are directly related to profitability. So that, that's sort of the impetus for the title. Beautiful. I've loved today's conversation. Uh, it was a real treat getting to speak to you and to, to dissect some of your thoughts in the book. Uh, before we say goodbye, I just want to give you a chance to let the folks that are listening into this uh, know how we can connect with you or where we should be able to find your book. I'm absolutely going to link to it in the show notes, but anything we should know to uh, learn yeah, more about well, your work. I appreciate that. Um, thanks. Uh, it's been great, great talking to you too. I, I can, as you can tell, I can talk about this stuff all day long, but Likewise. Um, the, there's a, you know, you can buy the book anywhere. Fine books are sold um, like Amazon, for example, but there's a website, the million dollar greeting.com. Um, you can find me um, at DePaul, obviously. Um, and uh, through LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm around available and happy to talk about hospitality with anybody who, who wants to beautiful and this is episode 537 so if you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 537 i'll have a link to the book over there and maybe i'll throw your email in there too in case oh, people want to yeah. yep and uh that's one way to connect and i have all my guests call somebody out so who is one independent restaurant operator somebody you admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today <laughs> um oh you're putting me on the spot sure um, am 
I would talk to, I'll talk to somebody, I would suggest somebody here in Chicago. Um, I would go with, I'll give you a chef, um, who's also pretty innovative, Nikai Paul Khan, um, one-off hospitality, great guy, um, smart, um, great chef, smart uh, businessman, uh, interesting person, and somebody who's invested not just in his own business and businesses, I should say, but also in the community here in Chicago. Paul Khan, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And again, just thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us, your story with us. There is no questioning, Dan. You are unstoppable. There is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Dan Sachs, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your book with us. Uh, and I really recommend getting this book. Again, that that book is The Million Dollar Greeting. You can find it on Amazon. I, I also link to it in the show notes. This is episode 537. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash five. Three seven, you can find a link over there, and uh, it's a really great book. Uh, it, it profiles uh, some incredible people in our industry, including Nick Cirillo, past guest on the show, Ari Weinswag, past guest on the show, Danny. Uh, sorry, it's actually not Danny Meyer. It's Danny Meyer's. Hold on a second. Uh, it's Danny Myers, Director of Operations, Richard Curran, who I'd also love to get on the show. Anybody from Union Square Hospitality Group would be great. Uh, and what this book does is it kind of very similar to what this podcast does is it highlights their business philosophies and their values. And one thing I believe um, that before you can go and do, before you can go and open a restaurant, you must be, you must be a certain person because you're only as good as the people you attract onto yourself and you're only going to attract onto yourself similar people. So if you want to attract onto yourself the best, you need to focus on being the best. And I'm not talking about doing one thing the best, which will help, but I'm talking about being somebody others want to work for uh, and attracting onto yourself those great people because you're just so freaking awesome. And that comes from discipline, habits, values. And, and that's what I'm trying to help you guys with. You, you are the average of the the five people you surround yourself with. I say it all the time. And uh, what Dan is doing in this book is giving you some really great people, deep dive into what their values are and uh, helping you be more like them. So great book. Check it out. And like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. As I'm reading this, I'm in New Hampshire and I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. I want to get out there again. I'm, I'm itching to get on the road again. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I know I have some great opportunities in the Austin area in November. I think that's where I'm going to be in about a month. It's crazy to say that's only a month away. Uh, but until then, I need some help. I need some people to make an example of on the show. I'm thinking I might head up to Burlington. Uh Vermont and maybe slowly start to trickle my way south. Um, all I know is I need good content and you guys know better than I do who, who to get on the show. You know your communities better than I do. So whoever it is in your community who all the other restaurateurs look up to because of who they are and the job they're doing, put them on my radar, please. Again, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. That's Eric with a C. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter, Eric Cacciatore. I'll be honest, I don't really check Twitter. So you're better off with Instagram. Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E. That's all I have for you today, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.